Someone who runs towards fresh challenges rather than shies away. The perfect embodiment of Etifat DNA. Welcome to our club, Jordan Henderson. I do not see the point of inviting the 1975 to a country and then telling us who we can have sex with. That was Saudi Arabian football club Al Etifak announcing the signing of former Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson and Matty Healy of British band The 1975 criticising Malaysia's anti-gay laws on stage in Kuala Lumpur. These recent news stories have highlighted LGBTQ rights in two of the many countries around the world where homosexuality is illegal. Henderson's £700,000 a week Saudi deal sent shockwaves through the game because he had been a vocal supporter of the Premier League's Rainbow Laces campaign, which stands up for LGBTQ inclusion. In his new club's promotional video, highlighting his career, his rainbow armband was digitally altered to appear in black and white. Matty Healy's Malaysia protest included an on-stage kiss with the 1975's bassist Ross MacDonald but was condemned by local LGBTQ activists as likely to create a backlash and therefore potentially damaging to their cause. Welcome to LSEIQ, the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. I'm Joanna Bale from the IQ team, where we work with academics to bring you their latest research and ideas and talk to people affected by the issues we explore. In this episode, I ask, what's it like to be criminalised for being gay? Homosexuality is illegal in just over a third of countries across the globe. The Human Dignity Trust, founded by two leading UK barristers to challenge anti-LGBTQ legislation, puts the current number of countries at 66. Some nations like Barbados have recently repealed anti-gay laws, but others like Uganda have just introduced the death penalty. And according to LGBTQ rights campaigners at the Global Philanthropy Project, conservative lobbies in the US are funneling millions of dollars abroad into movements which support the criminalization of gay people. I'm going to talk to an academic who investigated how Western gay men living in Dubai create covert communities where they can meet and socialize. And two gay men living in the city, one British, one a local Emirati, Tell me how they navigate a society where they are forced to hide who they are. So it was not an easy topic because of the setting in Dubai, in, U- in the UAE, where there's criminalization of homosexuality and essentially until a few legal reforms recently, criminalization of any kind of sexual contact, consensual sexual contact outside of uh, heterosexual marriage. Some of that has recently changed a bit for heterosexual couples who might not be married, but the criminalization of homosexuality remains uh, in place in the UAE and in several countries in that region. So there's quite a fearful context in which people lead their everyday lives if they are in some way uh, LGBT identifying. This is Dr. Ryan Sentner, Associate Professor of Urban Geography at LSE. He and a researcher at Harvard, Manuel Pereira Neto, posed the question, how can a sense of belonging be forged in a setting where one's existence is forbidden? 
They focused on Western expatriate gay men in Dubai, a city famous for its glitzy nightlife, but where gay dating apps are banned, along with gay bars and clubs. Gay men in Dubai technically risk deportation, imprisonment and the death penalty. But according to the US Department of State, there have been no reports of arrests or prosecutions for homosexuality since 2015, and the death penalty has never been applied. But in 2017, a British man was arrested under public indecency laws for touching a man's hip in a bar and sentenced to three months in prison. However, the charge was dropped after the ruler of the Emirate of Dubai intervened. While Dubai is more socially liberal than many of its neighbours, gay men still feel under threat. So gaining access to their secret lives was challenging. So getting people to talk was, or, or trying to approach this, was a bit of a puzzle. Uh, I was working with a former student, uh, Manuel Pereira Neto, who co-authored a uh, piece about this with me. Uh, and we had to rely on different kinds of personal contacts to reach people who were identifying as Western gay men living in Dubai. It helped that we were also Western identifying gay men, although not living in Dubai, but there for research visits. Ryan and Manuel spent six years in separate stints, conducting interviews and observing Western gay men in bars, clubs and private parties. Most gay nightlife takes place in Dubai's palatial international hotels. At first, they wondered how gay men knew where to go. These were different nights at uh, bars, hotel bars, and event spaces in different parts of Dubai, almost always connected to a hotel and always a kind of irregular night, irregularly occurring. So these would, the night itself might be advertised online in some way, but it would never have any kind of uh, use of gay, LGBT, queer, etc. no euphemisms, no rainbow flags but it would be known through word of mouth, through different uh, WhatsApp friend groups or expat networks that, okay, this night at this place is going to be a gay party. These are quite public spaces, so what does a gay party mean in this context? It would be quite possible for someone to stumble onto one of these nights, and if they weren't looking for it, not to be aware that it had quite a lot of gay men present because these would usually be quite uh, sort of calm affairs that will just look like a bar in some generic five-star international hotel. And not necessarily any, in fact, rarely having gay-associated club anthems that you might hear in a number of other uh, forwardly LGBT-identifying venues in other cities in different parts of the world. But every now and then, you would have some kind of gay-associated diva or anthem. It could be Beyonce, it could be Celine Dion, it could be Ariana Grande, and the crowd would just erupt with a kind of outpouring of performance and happiness and lip-syncing or singing along, and then quiet down again. So it always felt like these spaces were on guard. Western gay men at these events said they limited their alcohol intake for fear of making the wrong move on the wrong person, someone who could end up calling the authorities. 
But the researchers also discovered other, much more exclusive events in private settings, which provided an extraordinary amount of freedom. There were other spaces, fewer in number and more rare in occurrence, that would be much more over-the-top, boisterous parties, lots of drinking, although there was drinking in the other calmer venues as well, lots of drinking, lots of dancing, lots of same-sex intimacy, which at first was quite a shock to see in that uh, setting in Dubai, because it would be impossible in a more public venue, on the street, on the beach, in a shopping mall, you would never see any kind of outward intimacy between people of the same sex unless possibly it would be two friends holding hands, which does not indicate homosexuality, particularly in that cultural setting. But to see two men kissing or uh, dancing together very sexually, provocatively, uh, was limited to those kinds of spaces, which were quite detached, sometimes literally in the desert, sometimes in a private rented space, uh, in a very exclusive uh, rooftop bar that might have been rented out. These would typically be staffed and staff would rarely intervene, but occasionally would. And the exact logic of intervention was always a bit difficult for me to work out because it could be that uh, men were interacting in a quite apparently quite sexualized way, and that wouldn't seem to spark as much concern from security staff. Now, when I say in a sexualized way, I'm not talking about actual sex, but something that would appear very sexual on the surface or, or simulating sex. But more tender moments between people where there seemed to be a a real intimacy or relationship, that seemed to evoke a bit more of a reaction. Not an angry or especially strong intervention by security staff, but a kind of walking over and, and asking people to calm down a bit, to simmer down a bit. Was there any fear that these security staff might inform the authorities, or was it just a given that that there was, never there, happened? There was not so much fear about that in these particular settings, because if staff informed authorities, then there would be trouble not just for the attendees, in theory, but for the staff and especially for the organizers. So there was a kind of, of guarding of this. Now, it's possible that there could be a falling out and someone might report these sorts of events after they've, you know, they're no longer working here, but I'm not so aware of that. Eventually, Ryan and Manuel became trusted enough to be invited into expatriate gay men's homes for private parties. Those were accessible after getting to know people quite well so that uh, there was enough trust to be accepted into those spaces. And it, but it wasn't just about being allowed in, but about being able to perform in the right kinds of ways to then fit in once inside. Fitting in in those settings would be about having a shared set of references, even though people are from so many different countries, uh, whether it's where they grew up, where they did their schooling, where they last lived, but a common set of references in terms of pop culture, whether gay associated or not, up to the minute, uh, slang and jokes, often a fairly sexualized set, uh, or rather a fairly sexualized sense of humor in terms of joking about sex in general, joking about being gay, using sexualized euphemisms. Certainly don't want to suggest that it was all about sex, either 
the act of sex or talking about sex. It was not, but that this was a kind of basic element in some of the, the humor, the, the exchanges and conversations that would happen here. I mention all of that because that is quite a particular set of references, tropes, etc., that not everybody, including not all gay men, not, not everybody will be able to participate in that in a kind of fluent or fluid and easy way. So this would also sometimes end up excluding people, even if they might have been considered trustworthy, but not quite fitting in, in a setting where fitting in seemed to be paramount perhaps for legal reasons, but also just for an everyday kind of social comfort. People would, would often say something like, the, ear, the walls have ears in Dubai or in the UAE. Now, this has been said about many other places in the world too, but what the variations of that saying were trying to express is that you could almost never be too careful so that home spaces or these nights in, dinner parties, etc., were almost like a, a sacred space that had to be especially guarded so that people could open up more and either vent or commiserate or joke around in ways that would have been dangerous if done in a more public setting there in Dubai. Ryan concludes that Western gay men use their economic, social and cultural privileges to forge close-knit communities which exclude gay men from other cultures and socio-economic backgrounds. And it is fear that underpins this lack of inclusion. So economic privilege is a major factor in terms of who are you meeting, in what spaces are you circulating and literally able to, to buy your way in, to pay your entry into certain spaces. But there's also a strong element of fear so that people are vetted for trustworthiness before they're invited into a home space. But this fear has effects beyond an actual credible threat so that there's a constant uh, circulation of stories, and it's impossible to know how real these stories are. But stories circulating among gay men, among expatriates in particular, about, oh, well, you shouldn't, as kind of advice or warnings given, particularly to newcomers, oh, you shouldn't meet people through a certain app because that one has become really dodgy. That, I, oh, I heard somebody was uh, entrapped by the police through this certain app. Now, as you mentioned, the apps are illegal in the UAE. They're only accessible through VPNs, virtual private networks, which are also illegal in the UAE, but people get VPNs to then use apps that are otherwise banned. But some apps start to have a reputation that this one is more dangerous. So that sort of fearful set of stories and conversations would take on a life of its own and also work to prevent social interaction and to build barriers or to thicken barriers that already exist in a very segregated society like Dubai or the UAE more broadly. There are already many barriers based on what kind of work do you do, where do you come from, what passport do you have, what language do you speak. Those exist whether we're talking about LGBT people or anyone else. So then with a criminalized situation, those already existing social barriers between nationalities, languages, socioeconomic situations, those become thicker or stronger as people act out of fear, even if they don't necessarily see it or talk about it as being a fearful act of, of keeping others out. Thank you.
You're listening to the LSEIQ podcast, where this month I'm exploring what it's like to be criminalised for being gay. We've heard from Dr. Ryan Sentner, who uncovered the secret and exclusive world of expatriate gay men's nightlife in Dubai. I'm joined now by James and Jamal, two gay men who live in Dubai. To protect their identities, I'm not using their real names. James is in his 20s and British, while Jamal is in his 30s and born in Dubai. Both are successful professionals, but their experiences as gay men are very different. Here's James explaining how police target gay events. There are gay events uh, that happen, but they do get raided by the police. It kind of comes in waves. Sometimes you have like several nights in a row, several kind of weeks in a row where they'll close down a club. So you often get nights that change venues quite frequently. And there, people are very much open. Like people like go out of their way to kind of dress flamboyantly. And uh, I don't know, they'll have like Lady Gaga or Beyonce nights where people dress up and it's quite camp and uh, they'll have performers and stuff. But then they do get shut down by the police. But sometimes it will go for weeks and weeks where, or months without anything happening. And then all of a sudden, like several weeks in a row, it will uh, happen again. People like Western expats wouldn't get arrested. It's more the locals that would get in trouble. James is used to being verbally abused in public and sometimes physically threatened. He talks about one night out with his boyfriend, which ended in violence. When we're at like a non-gay event or anything, then we make a explicit effort to like not show that we're boyfriends. But I don't know whether I slipped or whether. Um, the waiter overheard something but then he started making these comments to us while he was serving and it was like okay and then i went to go get the bathroom and then the waiter came with a bouncer and they were like you can't go to the bathroom and i was like yeah because my boyfriend was like at the time he was oh yeah i'll come with you not to do anything no like funny business just genuinely just both need to go to the bathroom and they came and we were like, okay, well, can one of us go? And they were like, no, sit back down. And I was like, okay. So anyway, we paid, we left. And then the waiter followed us home and um, followed me to the apartment building. And then uh, we could tell he was following us, try to like go faster. And yeah, he started shouting at, shouting at us and he started running after us and then got into the lift and then I called my security and yeah, he tried to get violent, but yeah, this is my security in my building threatened to call the police. And then the other guy was like, yeah, go call the police. He's the one going to get in trouble. So I guess, but my security sorted it, but that was kind of scary. Like the fact that he followed me home and was trying to start something and then saying that I would get, be in trouble with the police, even though he was like trying to be aggressive and eventually throw punches at us. James says the situation in Dubai for Western gay men remains challenging, but is slowly improving. When I first came out in Dubai, when I was a teenager, I remember they used to have undercover people on dating apps, um, like police and stuff, but that doesn't happen at all anymore. I'm not really scared of that. The only thing that I'd be scared about is if I was on a gay dating app and I don't know something happens uh, and I got into an incident, I couldn't really report it to the police or I'd kind of be left on my own. So I think you're kind of a little bit vulnerable in that sense. It's not so much that they're actively going out and seeking out gay people or 
really punishing them much. I mean, it is technically illegal and still has the death death penalty, which I don't think they're ever going to use <laughs> for Western expats anyway. But yeah, I don't think you have the same protections, which is, I guess, the scariest thing. Do you feel like you're not really living your full life or, or is it just one of those annoying things that you have to get used to? You know, I just wondered if you kind of think, oh, I need to get out of here. This is too much or whether you're pretty chilled about it. Here's my home. I don't think I'd ever go back to the UK ever again. I mean, to visit, sure, but I'll never, I do not see myself ever like living in the UK. And I'm not saying that it's, it's amazing. And I'm not saying that it's right. There are problems with the country, but I think there's going to be some things about any place that you live that's in any kind of facet of your life that isn't always going to be a hundred percent and I think for me the lifestyle that I've got here and the friends and the opportunities I've got outweigh the, the other side. For James the advantages of living in Dubai outweigh the disadvantages. He has a well-paid job, his own apartment and a more luxurious lifestyle than the UK would offer. He also has family living nearby who are very supportive. But for Jamal, a local Emirati, it's a different story. Cultural expectations mean that he is under enormous pressure from his family and Emirati society to completely deny his sexuality. His words are spoken by an actor. For me, when discussing families, I would say it's a little bit sensitive because you're dealing with a lot of trauma, really, from a young age. Because we've always been taught like, you know, don't shame the family, don't ruin the reputation. Because how things happen in this part of the world, sometimes it's not even about the laws, you know. Everybody tackles these issues within society, within family boundaries. So every family entices their children not to engage in these activities or not to express yourself in that way. Because if you do so, then you bring shame to the family. Then you ruin the family's reputation. I will explain why reputation matters here. Because the way you can get anything done, at least for locals, you know, for local families, is definitely tied to reputation, money and all of that, connections. The way you do that is having a good reputation. If one individual ruins that reputation, you kind of ruin it for everyone. It's not just you. So I think for a child to have that burden, it's a little bit too much and definitely overwhelming. And that's why I always detach myself from the culture. Definitely respect it because I kind of have to, but definitely don't relate to it. Did they know you were gay or have they just surmised you were gay? Or how was that? Have you had to hide it for most of your life? Well, I definitely had to hide it, to be honest. But I've always known that they knew, you know? It just has been the fact that was never discussed. Obviously, later in life, it was because, I mean, <laughs> I refused to get married because I just don't think that's right. Eventually, obviously, they knew, you know, and I was presented with, you know what, you're still our child and you understand the culture and we do too. So you've got to live your life. Do what you want so long as you maintain your own reputation. You do you, basically, but don't do it around us or don't express yourself anywhere close to the family. And yeah, I would say that it scarred me a little bit, but I do think my siblings do accept me in a way. But also, I'm not sure if that's enough. Really, I'm not sure it's enough. But I do think it's more than I can bargain for. Yeah, I don't think this is the experience for everyone. But I do think, at least for my family, they give me the space, this leeway to just have it. 
I'm not sure if they did that because they love me or because they think it's a phase and maybe at age 40 or 50, it will just disappear. I'm not sure it will though, but oh well. So it's quite obvious then to most Emiratis that as you're single, there must be a reason. It really is tricky. Yeah. Because you know, you know what's up and you try to like hide it in a way. But because I mean, personally, in my professional setting, I would always say I didn't find the right person. Or rather, I would just rather build myself financially first. I'd rather do this project first, and then I would do whatever. But deep down, I mean, I know what's up. I think also my family knows as well. Yeah. And have they sort of ostracized you in any way for refusing to conform? Well, in my early days, I would say yes, you know, because it was just too fresh. My brothers are starting to get married. Even some younger than me started to have kids. And obviously, well, <laughs> what are people going to say? You kind of have to get married. It's also to point out the reputation part. They had to ask, why are you not willing to conform and do the route that most of the people that share my lifestyle would eventually do? And that's the thing. Most of them would do that. Most of them would actually get married regardless of their, you know, lifestyle <laughs> and regardless of their preference. I just wondered if you think you might eventually emigrate somewhere that's a little bit, you know, easier for you. It's because I've traveled outside that I've seen the world the way it should be. I understand that, obviously, even in America, you have places that are still conservative and definitely not very friendly. And even if you go to Europe, you'll see that. Well, you know, in Poland, they have some weird anti-LGBT laws now. Jamal is referring to how certain regions of Poland have declared themselves LGBTQ-free zones to ban marches and other events. Same-sex relationships are not legally recognised anywhere in Poland, and same-sex couples are banned from adopting children. So I understand that even in the West, there's still a pushback towards LGBT issues. But I do believe that there's definitely a way for, you know, people like us to definitely have families, to have a life that is worth living without being in fear of losing anything else that is also important. You know, I would love to actually be able to express myself and also build a family of my own without having to sacrifice the one that I've already got, you know? But sometimes you kind of have to choose. And I think I'm not sure if I want to choose just yet. Now, I think it makes more sense for me to detach myself definitely from the culture here, but not because I don't love it, but because it's unlivable, you know, at least for me. But obviously, I would always love it. And I will always try to convince, you know, people that are also scared to express these ideas, to express themselves, that you know what? No, you could definitely say it. You could definitely have a way. I think one of the means to do that is to be financially, you know, independent. And that's definitely what I aim to do ever since I left the family's house. Because I definitely do come from a family that is, you know, well off. But the moment I chose to live my lifestyle, I definitely detached myself from even the financial aspect of it. Because if I'm going to do this, I would rather have no help from my family. Because it wouldn't make sense. And they wouldn't support it anyway. So it always made sense for me to just work for myself. And I think I did that. And the next step is to actually seek that security elsewhere as well. So I can even leave eventually if I so choose to in the future. Definitely. What do you mean by security? Definitely financial security. Because I do have a lifestyle that I'm, you know, used to. And I do mean also the actual security, you know. 
like where you don't have laws that are set in place against who you are as a being, you know, even if they're not enforced, still, it makes it easy for people to bully you if there are laws set against you. And that's why I just don't think it's fair. And I, you know, I won't stand for that. Obviously, I won't be loud saying this here, but definitely for myself, you know, I would do that. Yeah. James and Jamal's stories highlight what it's like to be criminalised for being gay in a relatively liberal city like Dubai. In other countries where homosexuality is illegal, they could run a much higher risk of being imprisoned, executed or murdered. For James, life in Dubai is blighted by a fear of being threatened rather than protected by the law and wanting to enjoy a night out without the venue being raided by the police. For Jamal, it's more an existential struggle with a deeply conservative culture where homosexuality is taboo and gay men are expected to conform by marrying women and having children. The final word goes to Dr. Ryan Sentner, who told us earlier about his research on Western gay men in Dubai. I asked him about the state of LGBTQ rights around the world and whether he thinks the overall situation is progressing or regressing. He recommends a book by gay South African writer Mark Gavissa called The Pink Line, The World's Queer Frontiers. It tells individual stories of LGBTQ people across the globe. It does a very good job, I think, of trying to project the very different sorts of situations that people are facing in different countries around the world, how in some places it's a problem of, or it's an issue of being public about one's sexuality or one's relationship. Sometimes it's about one's political activities. Um, sometimes it's about being gay. Sometimes it's about being trans. So that book, I think, does a really nice job of giving a panorama of the situation around the world and without taking very strong stances for or against. It's a sobering book that can make you despair but there are also nuggets of hope in terms of the solidarities formed across different places and people who identify in different ways with this kind of LGBT spectrum or who are outside of it and working as, as allies to promote a more humane situation for everyone. This episode was produced and written by me, Joanna Bale, and edited by Oliver Johnson. If you'd like to find out more about the research in this episode, head to the show notes. And if you enjoy IQ, please leave us a review. Coming next on LSEIQ, Mike Wilkerson asks, can we change the world 